you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts today, and then we're going to take a break for the month of December, and uh, then we'll be back in January and uh, to conclude the, the book of Acts in the year 2023. And you have my soft commitment to that <laughs> being a reality for you guys. And then I thought maybe Leviticus or Numbers. And we would just work through that in a very exciting manner. Chapter 21, beginning in 17, everyone is telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do it. And we pick up in verse 17. Just like any good friend, he doesn't listen. After we arrived in Jerusalem, after being told by everyone we know not to go, the brethren received us gladly. Well, that's good news. The brethren received us gladly, and, and, and they followed. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all of the elders that were present there in Jerusalem. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That was Paul saying these things. And When James and the elders of the Jerusalem church heard it, they began glorifying God and they said to him, you see, brother, the same thing is happening here. How many thousands there are among the Jews here in Jerusalem who have believed and they are zealous for the law. By the way, they've been told some things about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles out there and outside of Jerusalem, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Boy, they went from greeting each other graciously and boy, things are going good to instant tension in the room. How many here have ever experienced that in your lives? Hey, it's good to see you. Here's why you stink. All right? So we got tension in the room. What then are we going to do, Paul? James says. What is it that is going to be done? Verse 22, they will certainly hear that you have come, and then the unity of the church is going to be blown up. Therefore, I got an idea. I'll tell you what to do. You're probably wondering what translation I'm reading from. It is the New American Standard Version with color commentary from Brett Boomsma. All right, so just bear with it. I got an idea what you should do, Paul. I have four men who are at the trail end of a Nazarite vow. And you have to purify yourself along with them because you've been in Gentile territory. Go ahead and pay their expenses. This is where you know James is not Dutch. Go pay their expenses that they may also shave their heads at the end of their Nazarite vow. And all will know that them and you uh, that none of the things that have been told about you are true. And that you yourselves walk according to the traditions and the heritage and orderly of the Hebrew Jews here in Jerusalem by keeping the law. And listen, I understand that the Gentiles who have believed... I understand what we wrote about them, decided that they don't have to follow the law, but, but they should abstain from meat sacrificed by idols on blood that has been, that has been strangled and, and need to be morally pure and abstain from fornication. We understand that. And then Paul took the men, the four men who were in the Nazarite vow, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for one another and to them. Now, what does that have to do with us? We're talking about the church here. What does that have to do with the church in West Michigan? What does that have to do with us? The same issue that is going on here is the same issue that is dividing the church today. Because there is nothing new in the heart of man. Amen, church? We just have different names attached to it. It's the same heart. It's the same issues. So before we walk through this, let's ask God's blessing. Because we need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. You do not need me to be your teacher. The Holy Spirit to be your teacher. And then we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, come before you. Not because I am worthy. But because you are worthy. Not because I have any authority, but you have all the authority. Not because I've earned it, 
but because you told me to. Father, I am not worthy to teach your word. But you are worthy to be spoken about. Help me to remember my studies. Help me to be humble. Help me to be strong. But above all else, Father, I pray that these people who belong to you would hear from your Holy Spirit. That you would open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, the ground around their heart to be torn open to receive the seed that is your truth, that it might grow progressively in our lives and transform us into the likeness of your Son, for your gospel is not dormant. And so, Father, I pray these things and I ask them in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you agree that it was a good football day yesterday, say amen. amen. Oh, to glory and honor be to him. My colors have nothing to do... Now, let's move forward, all right? Have you ever heard the words, don't touch that? Have you ever heard the words, don't say I didn't tell you? For weeks now, for months now, Paul has been warned not to go to Jerusalem. The elders in Miletus said, don't go. The believers in Tyre said, don't go. Philip's household with four daughters who were prophetess said, don't go. The, the, the prophet Agabus who came in from Judea told him what would happen. To sum it all up, everyone around Paul said, the stove is too hot, do not touch it. And by the way, it is a complicated heat. In this case, the stove was heated not only with enemies outside of the church, but rather enemies inside of the church as well. And in order to understand everything that we are about to read and then have application to our lives today, we must understand what is going on in the early church of Jerusalem that Paul has just walked into. And the first thing we need to know is that the church in Jerusalem is almost exclusively made up out of Hebrew converted Jews. That is Jerusalem, by the way, with political tensions, by the way, at an all-time high. Rome is an occupying force. In a few short years, the, the Jews will rebel against Rome, and Rome will come down on them like the hammer of Thor. Is that the right? Does the Thor have a hammer? Okay, they're going to come down on, on Israel and Jerusalem, and they're going to annihilate the temple in just a few years. So political tensions are at an all-time high. The Gentile influence in their culture is being seen as an erosion to who they are. This, by the way, created a huge weld, um, a, a merge of both faith and politics. It merged faith and politics, the believers inside of Jerusalem began, began to believe that a true Jewish Christian, a true Jewish Christian is one who is patriotic and loyal to its nation as well. Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, and nothing identified Israel more than, and set her apart more than her adherence to Old Testament laws and rituals. It's what separated Israel from everyone else. Can I speak free, frankly here? Do we ever on some level do this in our hearts and lives today? Do we ever combine patriotism with Christianity? Anyone? Politics with Christianity? Do we ever do this today? Has the church ever fought harder for a nationalistic identity than we ever have fought for the identity of Christ in the Great Commission? 
That's what's going on in this text. That is the heart that is going on in this text. My friends, the Jerusalem church is being torn apart between an alliance to the nation and an allegiance to the Great Commission. It is with this backdrop of fervent Jewish nationalism within the church that Paul walks into Jerusalem with Gentiles by his side. By the way, Gentiles that are persona non grata. They are not welcome people. They're not excited to see them. By the way, not only with Gentiles on his side, but a financial love offering from all of the Gentile churches in Asia in his hands. And he comes in to communicate all that God is doing and, and, and to those uh, that do not follow the law of Moses outside of Jerusalem. All these Gentiles are not following the law, and there is a Jewish nationalism going on, and Paul walks in with his Gentile friends with money in his hands. And Paul began to relate one by one the things which God has been doing among the Gentiles through his ministry. So awkward is this moment. So high are the tensions between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers that, that the author Luke here doesn't even mention the love offering that is in Paul's hands, which was a high priority to Paul the whole time. You'll find the mention of it in Acts 24, verses 17. To receive a love offering only further to complicate where James and the elders in Jerusalem are at right now. James is dealing with Jewish believers that think they must stand up to anything that would dilute the culture and the identity of Israel. And a love offering from the Gentiles of those who do not follow the law is not a great optic for James and the elders right now. It's complicating things. Fortunately for Paul, he walks into Jerusalem and he is standing next to the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James is the child of Joseph and Mary. The half-brother of Jesus Christ. And he walks in, and James is, by the way, the head elder of the Jerusalem church. And he's standing in front of the, the elders in their plurality as well. And by the way, good thing for Paul, they are mature in their faith, and they know and love the Great Commission. And because of this, their response and their receptivity to Paul and these Gentiles and this, this love offering, and with all of these circumstances going on, they were very gracious. In fact, it says here, they began to glorify God. Now, the word glorify here is in the, in the imperfect tense, which means they were, they just went on and on. They were thankful continually for the things that were going on in the Gentiles' nations and all that Paul is doing. They rejoiced, but their response and their gracious reception to Paul doesn't erase the difficult context in which they find themselves in. Is everyone following me so far? Anyone at all? Okay. Just because someone says, hey, that sounds great, doesn't mean context disappears. And Paul tells them all about the Gentile conversions that are happening outside of the Mosaic Law. All everything that's happening out in Asia. And James says, you know, I don't know what, Paul, we've had the same experience here in Jerusalem too. In fact, last time we talked about the church in Jerusalem, there were 5,000 men alone, not including women and children, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Pentecost, and were baptized in the streets of Jerusalem. And it's been decades since that time. The church in Jerusalem is thousands and thousands and thousands of, of Hebrew Jews. And he says, we're having the same experience, Paul, as well. Only our conversions are not producing uh, the same kind of believer that yours is, but we have very strict, scrupulous believers, and you'll see it right there in the text, that are very zealous for the law. They're very different perspective here. Now, this jealousy is not just an honor that should be paid to the law, but these Jewish believers put a high value on observing it as well. These Jewish Christians remained devoted to the law of Moses. Well, not as a means of salvation, they put a high value on observing a certain cultural standard. In short, they believed a certain cultural lifestyle was important to the great commission of the great, Christ, uh, the great commission. Now, as I thought about that, they highlighted a cultural lifestyle that distinguished them from others. Hmm. 
Do we ever highlight a cultural standard in order to separate ourselves from others? Anyone at all? Do we do that today? Of course we do. And some of it's good. Some of it's good and right. Some of it's just what we like. And there's a difference between the two. It was a zeal that produced fertile ground, by the way, for false teachers to come in. And those false teachers, we've heard this word before, were Judaizers to push a perversion of the gospel of grace. In summary, they pushed a form of Judaism. Allow me to explain. A Judaism that says, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we're kept saved by the law. We're saved by grace, but we're kept saved by the law. Acts 15, verse 1. So these false teachers took advantage of this Christian nationalism in Jerusalem and began to do what was as old as time. And here's what is old as time when it comes to the leader or shepherd or, or corporate owner, whatever the case may be. This is old as time, and here it is. To misrepresent situations in order to weave a believable lie. Let me say that again. They misrepresent a situation in order to weave a believable lie. In fact, it's found in the words. They says, we have been told, let's hit that button. We have been told by the Judaizers who are feeding off this Christian nationalism. We have been told that you no longer follow these things. Now, these four words in the Greek, we have been told, they have been told, is actually one word in the Greek. And it is the word where we get the word catechism from. In fact, if I were to pronounce it directly from the Greek, it would sound like this. Catechism. It's where we get the word catechism. Now, catechism in and of itself is not a bad word. It's simply an English word that implies learning through repetition. Learning through repetition. You have been in a catechism of Acts for nearly a decade now, all right? We are learning through repetition. But when added to what is going on here, it implies this. Not only were false information being told, but it was being told over and over and over again. Do you know if you say something false long enough about a person, you'll begin to believe it yourself? If you say something that is false long enough, you will believe it yourself And you can begin to believe your own lie as truth. And what is the lie in this text? What is the catechism of of misinformation, if you will, in this text? Well, it's right there in the purple that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. What is going on? The green box. All right? Jewish nationalism. You 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 are teaching not to follow Moses' law, telling them not to get circumcised. Oh my goodness, that's the covenant sign of Israel, Paul. And that our children don't even have to walk according to our custom. Now, with that going on, grab this. Let us remember the context. These believers, while genuine, are highly nationalistic. They have welded the nation and and, and politics to their faith. And because of that, it it has produced a zeal for the law. And they begin to believe a lie that Paul was a threat to who they were as a people, their heritage, their culture. And it is here where the biggest issue enters into the room. We'll call it the elephant in the room. Any good leader must identify the largest issue over the smallest issues in any situation. I want you to grab that. You have to identify what is the larger issue here. This lie about Paul, that he's saying, hey, forsake Moses, throw it all away, and you do you. This lie that has been catechismed, repeated, well, not true, has already begun to grow roots into the church. It is the elephant in the room. The issue was no longer the lie. That doesn't erase the issue. The lie still stands. But it no longer is the priority issue in Paul's gifted leadership mind right now. It is no longer the issue. As important as it may be, the larger issue was what it could do to the church. 
The issue is not, is Paul's reputation intact, but what will this do to the church? Now let me to be clear. There is zero indication in all of Acts, in all of Scripture, that Paul ever explicitly encouraged Jewish converts to abandon the law, or to abandon customs, or to abandon their conscience. In fact, if we remember the context of Acts that we're walking through right now, not only that, but recently Paul took on a Nazarite vow himself, shaved his head, wanted to go to present his hair as a sacrifice in the temple. By the way, he asked Timothy to get circumcised, even though he didn't have to, because he didn't want it to be a distraction to the gospel that they're trying to share not only that when he wrote about such matters uh, of the law or not following the law he said as a matter of conscience he said that in Romans chapter 14 Acts chapter 15 in fact Paul says I became a Jew when I was with a Jew and I became like a Gentile when I was with the Gentiles in order that I might win what church some culture was not the priority over the gospel. Oh, church, did we hear that? The culture is not a priority over the gospel. We'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19-22. So these catechisms of lies, while not true, but James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles and lover and church planter in the Gentile nations, sees there is a much larger issue here than the catechismic lie about him. The lie is no longer the priority issue. The split in the church, the split in the church and the damaging effects it will have on the gospel to unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem is now the priority issue. So that's where you see James go, what in the world? What is then to be done? If we were to highlight that in yellow and let it blink, all right? What are we going to do about it? I have Jewish believers who are very scrupulous and zealous for the law, and they are being influenced by Judaizers, and they think that you are, you are throwing their heritage under the bus, and you got Paul over here with his Gentile brothers and his love offering who do not follow it. And this church... It's supposed to be unified. This church priority mission is to go and share the gospel of reconciliation with God. And tell me what gospel could we possibly teach about reconciliation if the church can't be reconciled to one another? What cheap, shallow gospel is that? Now take a look at this. What is to be done? Is that not the question to almost everything in every predicament that we're in? Paul, couldn't, Paul could stand his ground and say, this is not so. How dare they? This is a lie. He could say, I have my spiritual liberties. I, yeah, I am no longer a slave to these things. And Christ fulfilled these things. And, you know, I don't have to be purified by killing some animal. I am purified by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen, church? We're, we, we are no longer separated. The, the veil has been torn in two. Why didn't Paul just bulldoze through with that truth? I will not have my name dragged through the mud. Or I must stand for this truth. But let me ask you a question. If that was his approach to the elephant in the room, what would it have done to the church and this culture and the circumstances? What would it accomplish? And at what cost would he vindicate himself? My friends, we should always stand up for the truth. We should always stand up for the truth. But I'm going to tell you something that may take a minute in order to observe, but I want you to do it, all right? Here it is. We must always stand up for truth, but not all truth carries the same order of value. Not all truth carries the same order of value. Allow me to explain this. Imagine, if you will, we had a patient, all right? And you are the doctors, all right? And we have a patient, and the patient is called the church. And boy, the church has a lot of scrapes. It has a lot of cuts. This is the Jerusalem church here. And by the way, it is the church in Trinity as well. It is the church down the road as well. How many would agree every single person who belongs to the church of Jesus Christ is still a mess trying to get right with God in, in relationship? Amen? 
Now, he's done all the work. We are saved by his grace alone. But man, do we mess things up. How many here with an amen have said, I, can we back it up? That looks to grow us. There we go. All right. <sighs> you know? How many here would say, I look like that? Anyone at all? I do. Now, the patient comes in and you're the doctor. Now, in this illustration, all those cuts represent truth. Look at all the truth that we have to deal with here. All the truth that needs to be corrected. You look at the screen, and the cuts represent truth. And one cup, one, one cut is deep into the artery, and it's, it's just hemorrhaging out of the side. How many think, good job with the analogy? Anyone at all? Isn't that great? <laughs> By the way, all I typed in was, was spilt red paint PNG. And that's what you get. All right, now you've learned something. One of the cuts is in the artery, and it is deep, and it is hemorrhaging. Here's a question. I want you to answer it. You can just yell out your answer, all right? Now, let me just say this part. All the cuts represent truth. All the red up there represents truth. Here's my question. Which cut would you address first? Talk to me. Go. The artery. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. They're all truth. They're all truth. You can't, you can't categorize which truth is more important. Yes, you can. And by the way, yes, you must. You must. The hemorrhaging artery. But shouldn't they all be treated equally? After all, truth is truth. This is how oftentimes people want a pastor to care for their church. And it's impossible. Why not start with the scrapes on the knee or the rug burns on the elbow? Why not start with all the scrapes and, and save the deep cut in the artery for last? Why don't we do that? What, what is the potential danger if we take care of the ankle before we take care of the artery? What, what's the danger? Talk to me. You're going to lose the patient. Not all truth carries the same order of value. What good would it be if we bandaged everything up and lost the patient, and lost the church. That is what sits in front of James and Paul. Because if you don't address the highest value first, the others will not matter in time. By the way, these are called distracting injuries. Distracting injuries, because if distracted by them, we might lose the goal. That is what Paul is dealing with him. In comparison of truth, the lie about him is a distracting injury at this time that if addressed first may cause the loss of the patient and the church. Yes, there are cuts in, in, in the Jewish believer's Christian nationalism that must be addressed. Yes, there are, there are rug burns of lies coming from the Judaizers who are in a catechism telling lies about Paul. Yes, there is that distracting injury, but there is a deep hemorrhaging cut in the artery of the church that is the unity of the church and the effectiveness of the gospel in the culture in which it lies. That must be addressed first, or there will be nothing to address later. I want to tell you something here that I've never told you, and in some ways I never will. <laughs> How's that, huh? I'm about to tell you something I've never told you, and I never will tell you. That's the end of the example, all right? There it is. Years and years ago, I went away on a conference, and I came home to a great deal of catechism about me. A great deal of catechism. A man was giving out a great deal of catechism, of edited truth, and that truth had begun to circulate in the bloodstream of the church while I, was while I was gone, and I came home to an absolute mess. I even got to read about the mess on social media. God bless social media. By the way, your elders were very supportive of me when I returned they were ready to correct the record. They were ready to defend and protect me. And I am so blessed to be under their care. I am so blessed to be under their care. And it is a joy in my life to submit to their authority in my life. 
They are my earthly authority. But the problem was the damage had already begun. The damage had already begun. The issue was no longer what was being said. That was a distracting injury. Are you following? It was no longer what they were saying about me. That was the distracting injury. The issue was you. The unity of the church. The integrity of the gospel. So I said to the elders, I I appreciate your support, thank you, but right now, the issue that is in front of you is no longer the issue that is primary. The church is the priority. And if I don't eat crow here, if if I go out there and defend myself, or you defend me, it will only credit the lie. And we would see a great portion of our church divided and I could win the moment in the short run and I could lose and hurt the church and its reputation in the long run. It is better for the church that I eat crow. It is better for the church than I vindicate myself and damage them. And to this day, you will never know about what was said. There are people outside of this church who believe, just like here in the context of Paul here, All right, there are people who will believe the worst and say the absolute meaning things about me where I simply must not defend myself for in doing so I will only increase the problem and you want to go you want to know what that is okay as long as you are okay and the gospel is not harmed that is what we're seeing right here Paul is not sacrificing truth for convenience. He is addressing the most important issue through self-sacrifice in order to keep the church unified and healthy. And James, by the way, being a godly man, has already thought of a solution. He says, therefore, I I know what you ought to do, Paul. There it is. How many here have ever asked your opinion on something already holding the answer in their head? Anyone at all? hey, what are your thoughts? And you give them their thoughts and they go, nope, we're doing this, all right? James has got a solution. You've been in Gentile territory, which according to the law of Moses makes you in the eyes of our Jewish brothers here in Jerusalem unclean. Now, according to the law of Moses, and by the way, our customs, the Mishnah, you should be ritually cleansed before joining us in temple worship. You'll find that in Numbers chapter 19 and in the Mishnah, in the Ohel 2, 3, 17, verse 5. There, write that down. Your friends will be so impressed. They'll think you're weird, all right? That's okay. We are a peculiar people, are we not? How many here would agree when you look around the church, these are some peculiar people? Anyone at all? I'm one of them. Now, I want to pause here. I know we're going deep. I know we're going into historical background and culture, but I'm begging you, come with me, because in an hour and a half, we are going to have an application that's going to blow your mind. Grab this here. Because Trinity, we go through this. And Trinity, we will go through this the rest of our breathing lives with one another. I am going to fit an organ into this church, into this message. When I mean organ, I don't mean organs. I mean drunk piano. Organ, okay? I know, I like the organ. It just always reminded me of... How many here are reminded of roller skating at all when you hear an organ? Anyone at all? And certain hymns, coming again, dun, 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 dun. It's like all skate, ladies' choice. I'm sorry, let's move forward, all right? You need to cleanse yourself. Even though Jesus fulfilled the reason for the law, even though the veil is torn, even though his blood purifies us and we have direct access to God and we don't have to kill something in order to be in his presence, Amen? He satisfied all of that. It's not the issue of the moment. It's not the hemorrhaging artery. So James says, go and purify yourself. That you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But by the way, I got an idea. Go the extra mile. And this will blow our minds. Why don't you pay for all the men who are under a Nazarite vow at this time? Take them, all right, and show that you are sincere, 
Not only with your actions and going through the motions, but by, here it is, paying their expenses. Here's, here's, a, here's a point here. You know someone is sincere when they are willing to pay the price of something. Amen? This is, by the way, no small expense. These four men, likely towards the end of their Nazarite vow, Paul is not entering into a Nazarite vow, he is going to enter into a week of spiritual cleansing in order to go into the worship of the temple. So Paul's got a week, and these men are probably probably 30-some days into their Nazarite vow, and he's going to join them, and by the 40th day, they will all be purified together. It's not cheap. All four of these men, all right, who are weeks into a Nazarite vow. By the way, that's evidenced in the fact that they shaved their heads. This was going to be expensive. For each of the four men required several sacrifices. Numbers chapter 6 verse 14 tells us that each man would need three animal sacrifices for each one plus a food and drink offering. Each one. And that's before Paul paid for his stuff. In summary, pay for these men to finish their Nazarite vow. And purify yourself according to the law of Moses. And then you will show the church that these catechisms of lies are untrue about you. And that you oppose, that you oppose Moses and our Jewish heritage. And here it is. It's right there in the text. Um, right there in the blue. And all will know there is nothing to the lies, the catechism of lies, which they have been repeatedly saying about you. you got a shaved head. you got temple presence. Money being spent. Now tell me, church, and I want you to answer this. Biblically, does Paul have to do this? What's the answer? It's two letters, starts with N. Does he have to do this? He has his spiritual liberties, does he not? He has truth on his side. Is Paul under the law? No. Is he spiritually unclean? No. Has the blood of Jesus made him clean and there is no longer anything that separates him from God? Yes! then why is he doing it? Because the unity of the church and the gospel effectiveness in Jerusalem is far more important than his pride and personal freedom. And James then makes it clear. He says this, I like this, we're almost done. We are in no way saying that the Gentiles have to do the same thing, Paul, by the way. We're not instructing, okay, we got the instructions in Acts 15 that Gentiles believers do not have to follow the law of Moses, but as a commitment to relational unity between us and the Gentiles, the Gentiles who do believe, there it is, the Gentiles who have believed should, should abstain from meat sacrificed from idols because that would just blow the minds of Jewish believers. They need to stay away from immorality, which by the way, will be biblical in the New Testament as well, and it was in the Old Testament, and culturally we need them to do these things things, but they don't have to follow the law. In short, he's saying, James, or Paul, I'm not asking anything from our Gentile brothers. I'm just asking it from you. I'm not asking anything from those men who are standing right next to you now. In fact, I will call them my Gentile brothers who have believed. I will call them my brothers in Christ. But I need your help with this hemorrhaging wound in our Jewish church here. And look what Paul does. Look what Paul does. Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purifications until the sacrifices, three animals, one food, one drink, each of them was accomplished. My friends, here's the first part of stepping out of the historical background into some application for our lives. Here it is. No church can survive if everyone has their spiritual liberty and rights as the primary goal of their faith. The church in Jerusalem goes kaboom if Paul says, my liberty's first. And so does it with James. Not only that, this is not the gospel being lived out in our lives. Now let me be clear. James is not asking Paul to sin. Grab that. James isn't saying, Paul, sin against God. He's not saying that at all. Observing the law of Moses for conscience sake was not sinful. 
In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14 that such matters are an issue of Christian liberty and conscience. Paul's being asked by the pastor in Jerusalem church to suspend his rights and act with cultural sensitivity. Oh, hear this church, to suspend his rights and act with cultural sensitivity because he's in Jerusalem now in the context he finds himself in without compromising the gospel. And we say, okay, 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 got it, got it, got it. But what is the application for us? 2,000 years later in the church that is nothing like the church in Jerusalem in 58 AD. 12 years from now, everything there is going to be destroyed. That's how tense things are. But what does it have to do with us today? And we are nothing like this church in 58 AD. My friends, that is exactly the point. We are exactly like them. We have different culture. We have different heritage. We have different Matters of conscience and matters of positions, but we're just like them. While it is true we are very different from the church in Jerusalem on cultural issues, the problem they face then is universal to what we face in our hearts as a church today. It is why Luke even put this in the text. Oh, do you see how important it is to have the meaning of the text be the message of the sermon It is because of such shallow approaches to God's Word that the church finds itself embattled with one another with distracting injuries. Here's the point. When matters of spiritual liberty and personal conviction and conscience differ from one another, James and Paul, they're in different places. The churches are in different places. When matters of spiritual liberty, impersonal conviction and conscience differ from one another, it creates problems, does it not? How many here remember music wars in the 80s and 90s in the church? Anyone at all? Did that create any scars? Did that create any problems? Let's not get into church polity. Let's not get into where the, the rapture is pinned. Let's not get into dress codes or hairstyles or music preferences. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at this here. It creates a problem. That if both sides do not show discernment and humility, could not only destroy the unity of the church. How many here have ever seen the unity of a church destroyed? Signify by saying amen. Have you ever seen it destroyed over doctrine? rare sometimes have you seen it destroyed over liberty and personal preference almost always exactly what power of the gospel are we going to proclaim transformed lives that can't even get along with the brothers and sisters over discernible issues wow let's wrap this up you can not only destroy the unity of the church but the gospel message of those who are watching in. Destroy the gospel message to those who are watching in. D.L. Bach gets to the point of this all. And here it comes. He says this. We may be asked to engage in neutral practices. That's what James is asking of Paul. A neutral practice. That are culturally driven. Not because we have to. You have spiritual liberty. You don't have to do it. But if you dig your heels in, it it may cause unnecessary static in the church that brings disunity and hinders the gospel to those who are looking in. And Paul sees the elephant. Do we ever see the elephant? Or do all we see is our emancipation proclamation in Jesus Christ? This has all but disappeared from the Western church today. Neutral is the key word here. Where the Bible is clear, we do not move from. But in areas of discernible differences, we must be willing to be flexible with one another for the sake of unity and the testimony of the gospel. Well, we may want to cry, but I am free in Christ. Yes, you are. I have my liberties. Yes, you do. 
my, my convictions and my conscience. Oh, F.F. Bruce hits it out of the park when he says this. A truly emancipated heart is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Let me reword that to boomsma verbiage. A free believer in Christ will not become enslaved to his, his or her spiritual liberty. Did you catch that? We're on our last page. There's no evening service, so I'm taking that time, whether you like it or not. It is possible for a believer to be captive in a cage called liberty. They will destroy the church with it. And James looks at Paul and says, I need your help, brother. James looks at Paul and says, I need your help with keeping unity in the culture of which you find this church. And you have my commitment that I will not impose my culture on your Gentile believers that are next to you. Neither James nor Paul, grab this, we're almost done. Here's the application, grab this. Neither James nor Paul will make a power play against one another. Let this mind be in you, that which is in Jesus Christ was written to the church who, who became a servant. I will, neither will make a power play against one another. And this is about a subject as important as the law of Moses. This is no small hitter. I'm willing to be flexible here, Paul. By the way, if, if James and the elders in the church of Jerusalem can do this with Paul and his Gentile believers on a subject as high as the law of Moses, the Torah, how much more should we be willing to do it today with insignificant issues? Bible versions, dress codes, politics, masks, alcohol, brand of culture, worship style. Oh, here's the heavy hitters. Drums, organs, jeans, suits, personalities, activism, church polity. Oh, here the heart of Dr. Luke and what he is telling us. These liberties and positions that we hold, as important as they may be and as convinced as we may be for ourselves, must evaporate in the heat of the surpassing value that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unity of his church. For what gospel of reconciliation to God will we ever dare speak of if we can't bridge a gap between our own personal desires? And by the way, these principles go in both directions at equal speed on any cultural and discernible issue and and hermeneutic that may divide us. And to my older saints, I say to this, preserving a preferred style of worship that drives the young generation away is not protecting the gospel. It's protecting your culture. And to the younger generation, which is me, amen? (laughs) I haven't forgot to step on your toes. To the younger generation, running over your senior saints who have bled and sailed deep waters for the church of Jesus Christ to run over them in the name of progress is no more noble. The refined believer must be as flexible to the informal as the informal must be gracious to the refined because not only is that the gospel in action, but it protects the gospel with trying to be given. Imagine if Paul dug his heels in here. Imagine if Paul dug his heels in here and James made a power move in the name of truth. How much time and energy would the church spend on that distracting injury? Talk to me. How much time would we spend on James and Paul arguing while the artery bleeds out? What happens to the patient, church? How much time and energy does the church of America today spend on issues while people go to hell? How much infighting 
do we do? How captive are we to our liberties as we damage the gospel? As we hinder discipleship? How often do we do this? Oh, do you see? While everything changes, everything remains the same. Rather than making disciples and sharing the gospel, Satan would have danced his way out of the church in Jerusalem the same way he dances out of the hallways of the church today because he knows each side has become a slave to their liberties. How ingenious is our adversary. He has learned to lock the effectiveness of the church and the message of the gospel in a cage locked by a key called personal liberty. And we sit inside our hermeneutical cage and we shake the, the doors and go, look how free I am. Oh, can we see through the bars just a little bit clearly today? I want you to contrast this, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to contrast that with the words of Jesus when he prayed. This is Jesus' prayer for you and I at Trinity. It's his prayer for the church in Jerusalem and the church of Philippi and the church of Corinth. The church in Michigan, the church in California. Your word is truth, Jesus said to his father. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent Trinity into the world. Father, I don't ask this for myself or for my original 12 disciples, but for everyone throughout all time who will believe in me, Gentile and and, and, and Jewish and Republican and Democrat and and, and liberal and conservative. I don't, Father, any one of them who believe in me, that they may be one. Even as you, Father, and I are one. that the world may actually believe that I am from you. Us reconciling our rights towards one another is one of the greatest evangelistic tools the church has to those looking in that the world may believe that Jesus is true. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that its depths reveal so much. And Father, I pray for our church that each one of us would open the cage of our spiritual liberty And love one another as you have loved us. Father, may what we share in common overrule all that divides us. May the world see that you were sent by the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.